Okay, so this is our second episode in our series on ambiguity and why it hurts. If you remember back two episodes ago, we spoke with Kevin Garcia and we shared their story of being hurt by a church that wasn't clear on its policies regarding LGBTQ inclusion. And you will remember that Kevin spoke pretty pointedly on the issue, uh, telling folks that choose to remain in ambiguous spaces, if you're not there to change that space, then get out. Otherwise, you are complicit. Right. And today we're not sharing a conflicting perspective, but we are recognizing that leaving a church that you've been a part of for a long time isn't necessarily an easy thing to do. To leave the spaces that we've called home for so long is difficult, especially when that church is the Catholic church. There are many LGBTQ plus Christians who are part of the Catholic Church and choose to remain there, even though the Catholic Church is steadfast on its policies that marriage is between one man and one woman. Uh, so that's our show today. But before we get started, Colby, we should introduce ourselves. Uh, my name's yes. Nate. Yes. <laughs> yeah. My name's Nate Dove. My name is Colby Long. And this is Thanks Be to Pod. So today, I had the opportunity to sit down with and share the story of... Hi, I'm Maria Machansky. Maria is a queer Catholic. Yes, you heard that right. Maria chooses to still identify as a Catholic, even though her church doesn't fully accept who she is. So I grew up in Nashville, Tennessee, the area around Nashville, um, Roman Catholic, um, and very Roman Catholic. Maria is a cradle Catholic. She's been going to Catholic Mass since the days that she was born and has at times been really proud to be Catholic and considers that a core part of her spiritual identity. But of course, being Catholic comes with its own set of baggage. And Maria has experienced that baggage from a very early age. Growing up had... I would say like an intensely polarized um, relationship with the Catholic Church. I was a very deeply religious child. Um, Any way that I could be involved in church, I was. I was part of church choir. I was an altar server. Um, You know, I read at mass and I I loved I loved church. Um, And because I grew up as a girl in the Roman Catholic Church. Um, That was also a really difficult time for me because uh, as much as I threw myself into my experience of of church and of religion, um, I had doors shut in my face or I was told that my involvement in the Catholic Church had to look a certain way or could only Mm -hmm. go so high. Um, In first grade, I articulated a desire to become a priest um, for the first time. And, uh, by drawing that in my, my first grade daily journal for what I want to be when I grow up, um, and had that quickly quashed, um, by a teacher. And, um, so this was like for a class, it was like, you know, whatever your first grade daily journal, whatever. I dug it out of my parents' attic a while ago (laughs) and I was flipping through it and I found a page that, was the like, what do you want to be when you grow up page? And I had drawn myself as a Roman Catholic priest. 
Um, and I had written something to the effect of, I want to be the first woman priest. I want to have three kids and no husband and live in my parents' attic forever. Um, and bold claims. None of those dreams <laughs> have come true. <laughs> Sad to say. Oh my gosh. So I just want to point this out just in case anyone doesn't know, of course, being a woman in the Catholic church precludes you from the priesthood. Uh, but to me, Colby, it doesn't sound like that fact really affected Maria's faith as a child. Right. Not at all. And skipping forward a few years. Um, and then in high school, I uh, I continued to be really involved in church and I became a, a Catholic retreat kid, kind of. There's a really robust um, youth retreat program here in the Nashville Diocese and I became really involved in it. Um, and I also started volunteering with a Catholic organization in West Virginia when I was in high school um, called Bethlehem Farm, which is an intentional community in West Virginia right. um, that does all kinds of cool work. And I started volunteering there in high school and that was my first real exposure to a more progressive kind of Catholicism that most people don't know exists. I had a couple of teachers in high school um, who taught social justice um, and Catholic social teaching and Catholic ethics and really um, pushed the boundaries and opening students' eyes to a more progressive strand of Catholicism that often gets buried. Um, and that's where I really fell in love with the parts of Catholicism that I still love. Um, so in high school, Maria is super turned on to this progressive strain of Catholicism, so much so that it actually affected uh, what she chose to study in college. I went to college to study theology. I thought I wanted to be a high school theology teacher and teach kids that same part of Catholicism that I enjoyed so much. Um, and I met my husband through that organization. Um, we're still, I mean, it's been 10 years next year that I've been involved with that organization. And it's still um, a kind of a cornerstone in my life. Um, in her junior year, Maria's relationship with Catholicism started to deteriorate when... I came out as queer um, and tried to stick it out, was pretty committed um, and convinced that I could change the church from the inside yeah. um, and stuck with it for about a year. And about a year later, there were a couple of different um, events that made it ultimately too difficult for um, my then fiance, now husband and I to stay in the church as queer people. Um, and we decided to quote unquote leave. So I can't help but think about how disappointed Maria must have been having grown up a devout Catholic who loved the theology of the Catholic Church, then to realize what she thought was a home couldn't fully be a home. Yeah, you you could feel this deep disappointment and letdown as Maria shared her story, enough so that she left the church for a little while. Because she felt pushed away and marginalized. So you said a little while. Is she actually back at church now? Actually, that's what makes her story even more interesting. In the years since first walking away from the Catholic Church, Maria has realized... That leaving wasn't as easy as I thought it was. Um, 
that I didn't really know what leaving meant because it didn't seem as simple as just not going to mass anymore. Um, and then a lot of parts of me still felt really Catholic. Um, mm. And then I really, I, I was mourning um, the ritual of Catholic right. mass. Um, and so I, in the past three-ish years, I practice on and off. I go to mass when I feel like it, which at this point in time is not that much. Um, usually major holidays and on occasion I kind of get nostalgic and want to go on a weekend. Yeah. And, um, I take a lot, a lot of my personal spiritual identity is developed out of um, Catholic social teaching, the witness of the Catholic worker movement, um, Catholic pacifism, um, and it's more of a private individual practice for me a lot of the time and do you still have is there still a part of you that it is like wanting to be more involved in that like is there still the first grade maria that's saying like but i want to be a priest yeah and i think that's come there wasn't for a while i was kind of okay with um I got to a point where I really realized that I had a lot of issues with the notion of priesthood altogether and, and found it was kind of fucked up to begin with yeah. um, because I don't believe in hierarchies and I have a lot of issues with them. Um, but now as I'm working on developing my own business to do LGBTQ centered wedding planning and officiating, um, having that kind of call to a, a leadership role in a ministerial setting in some capacity and something that's sacramental um, wanting that kind of validation of priesthood or recognizing that that is a priestly vocation for me, um, has kind of brought that full circle in some ways. Right. So it's the, the desire to be a priest, quote unquote, is still there, but it's manifesting in a different way. Yeah. It's, it, for me, it, it feels like it's coming about as wanting to create sacramental experiences right. and sacramental witness in the lives of, especially folks who have been marginalized by the church. And for me, vocationally, LGBTQ people who have been marginalized by the church. So, just to be clear, for Maria, being a Catholic doesn't necessitate attending Catholic Mass. It runs deeper than that. Her Catholicism is a core part of her identity, and it goes beyond her Sunday morning ritual. And I think that's what makes this story very interesting. Yeah, definitely. And I think it's important to note that Maria still goes to Catholic Mass occasionally. She hasn't completely disassociated herself from that part of her Catholic identity, which is also interesting because that space has so much baggage for LGBTQ plus people. And so I asked her to explain why she and other LGBTQ plus folks might continue to attend mass, even though they aren't fully affirmed within that space. Yeah, I have like three, <laughs> three. It started off as one and now it's three, Great. three specific thoughts on that. One, it's kind of a known phenomenon, especially if you're talking about LGBTQ people who are drawn to conservative spaces. Um that LGBTQ folks, a lot of the us, um, at some point in time, try are drawn to some kind of a conservative space, whether it be um, a highly conservative church or the military or something with a lot of structure mm. and rules. Um, because, especially early on in identifying or figuring out your identity, okay. 
um, because that can be such a difficult process and a confusing process and one that feels like all the rules have kind of been thrown out the window um, that having that that structure imposed for you um, is feels safe um, it feels like something you don't have to figure out. So you'll find a lot of trans people in particular in the military and in the Catholic Church at some point in time because um, it helps. It, it feels like it's helping to make sense out of life when everything feels really confusing. Right, like sustaining and like making a routine out of certain areas of your life gives you the space or the freedom to explore the more like chaotic parts of your identity yeah so that's one answer i think there's two others one of them is that people who are progressive on one issue are not progressive on all issues and especially um i think there's kind of a misconception that all lgbtq people are politically progressive right and we know that that's not true um And so I think conservative religious spaces that an LGBTQ person can be in or get away with being in in some capacity, um, slide under the radar, um, allows them to gain a sense of power in other identity capacities, especially white LGBTQ people um, or upper class LGBTQ people. Um, So that's another reason I think is... If you can get over this part of your own personal identity, you can find a religious community that aligns with your other conservative values. Okay, this is such an important caveat, and I'm we've yet to make this on this episode, and I'm so glad that she's making it here. Yeah. Uh, But this, of course, I don't think answers the question, why is Maria still attending Mass? Right. For Maria... As someone who is very progressive, left of left, and... (laughs) openly queer and openly opposed to most of the things that my own religious identity teaches um is there some there's some uh third quality to religions that can't quite be identified that um it goes beyond the teaching and it goes beyond the the public stances and it comes down to the kind of mystery and ritual of religious experience Mm -hmm. Um, so as much as I disagree with probably over 50% of what the Catholic Church teaches these days probably more like 75% um, there is something in me that feels inherently Catholic that I don't want to let go of. And so that's why you'll find me in a Catholic church pew from time to time. Not because I agree with almost anything they say, but because something in me is deeply moved by the rituals of the Catholic church in particular um, and and is not satisfied with my experiences in other more progressive churches. I've spent time in some progressive break-offs, um, independent Catholic spaces that are practice open communion and LGBTQ inclusion and women's ordination. And I enjoyed them and they fed me in a lot of ways I needed, but something brings me back to the Roman Catholic church pew. Okay, so it's the time of the show where we pause and tell you how you can help thanks be to pod we also have an exciting announcement so actually don't skip through this 
ad because we're not just asking for your money. We want to tell you something that's actually really exciting that's going on for us. Yeah, we we have the privilege of recording a live podcast episode, our first live podcast episode at the 2020 Q Christian Fellowship Conference. It's called the Great Communion. It is going to be January 2nd through 5th of 2020 down in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. Yeah, and so the the Q Christian Fellowship is a wonderful organization. If you've never heard of it before, I would definitely recommend checking it out. It is for LGBTQ plus people and their allies to come together for an amazing, amazing, uh, well, it's more than a weekend and several days where there is worship and conferences and breakout sessions and all sorts of different things. And there's also live podcast recordings and we are going to be one of those and we're super excited about it. Um, and... This is something cool. If you're interested in going or if you're already planning on going to the Q Christian Fellowship Conference, we actually have a discount code specifically for Thanks Be to Pod listeners, which is kind of cool. And that discount code is THANKS2020. And if you register now, uh, like in the next two weeks, you register with THANKS2020, uh, you'll get $45 off the regular cost to go to Q Christian Fellowship's 2020 conference. And definitely let us know if you're going to be there. We would love to meet up with y'all and actually get to meet some of the folks who are listening and engaging with the stuff we're putting out. Right. And apart from this, uh, if you want to support the show, if you want to hear more episodes from us, if you want to send us to more places to do live shows, the best way to do that is to go to thanksbetopod.com slash support. There you'll find a link to our Patreon page where we do uh, a separate podcast for our patrons. Do we, we do weekly homilies for our patrons and other things. We also have a, a spot where you can make a one-time donation uh, to Thanks Be to Pod. And uh, speaking of that, I think it is we need to recognize the generosity of our patrons, uh, because once we found out we were going to go to the Q Christian Fellowship Conference, we were like, "Wow, this is an amazing opportunity!" But can we afford it? And so we put a we put a, a call out to our patrons who support the show, and we said, "This is something that we're doing." And one of our patrons uh, just decided to take it upon himself to pay our travel expenses. Um, his name is Steve. We're super happy. It was. We Great weren't guy. expecting Follow it. him on Instagram. <laughs> solid, solid podcast content. If you need advice on what other podcasts to listen to, once you're done listening to Thanks Be the Pod. <laughs> well, let's hope you're not done listening to Thanks Be the Pod <laughs> anytime soon. But we were blown away. I mean, absolutely by the generosity of Steve and just like what we're building as a, in our Patreon community. The fact that someone would do this for this podcast, which literally just started like six months ago or less, you know, I mean, it was amazing. And so that's why we're going to the Q Christian fellowship conference. And it, it, you know, we, we, this is how this podcast happens. We wouldn't be able to do this without people like Steve who believe in us, who want this to happen. And so please, if you like the podcast, consider being a sustaining member, we could totally use your help. So just to summarize, Maria's Catholicism extends beyond the bounds of the Catholic Mass, but she still does occasionally find herself drawn to the rituals of the Catholic Church. 
I imagine, though, that Maria certainly experiences a lot of conflict within the space that doesn't fully affirm her identity. I mean, she does say that she disagrees with 75% of what they are teaching. Right. And she talks about that pretty openly. I graduated high school, an ultra-Catholic young woman who had some progressive views, but also some strikingly conservative views that I've now completely flipped on. Um, And... I, you know, voted for myself for best Christian attitude as my superlative in high school. That's the story I like to tell on myself. Oh, my gosh. Um, that kind of holier-than-thou mentality. Yeah. Um, and I've come back, and now I'm in a position where in May, I was on the cover of USA Today in an article about Catholic priest sex abuse scandals um, interviewed in the same article with my childhood family priest, and I didn't know it. Oh my gosh! Um, until that got put out, and I was a little afraid to go to mass with my parents for a while. Yeah. Um, because that 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 shift is happening in very real time, um, in circles that are just kind of yeah touching. Yeah, that's really interesting because like. Anything, like, digital, you can at least just, like, swipe on past it. Mm -hmm. But these sorts of moments for you, like, you're confronting head-on, like, the religion that you, like, were a part of. Or I don't even want to say religion, but the community that you were a part of. And you're, like, facing them as you are changing and growing in your own beliefs. Yeah. And it's been... It's interesting because usually the way you get, well, I wouldn't say usually, you get two kinds of backlash from the Roman Catholic Church. You get flat out ignored, which is usually what happens most of the time. You get, they just pretend like you're not saying anything. Um, Or you get kind of direct, harsh criticism. And I've gotten like a nice mixture of both. <laughs> of both. <laughs> nice, um, I did like, have like comfortable. A, yeah, I had a, like a youth minister of mine kind of attack me on someone else's Facebook status hmm. when that came out that I like didn't even see. Like two months later, my brother was like, did you even see this? <laughs> I was like, no. But he managed to like in one fell swoop question my marriage, my sexual identity, and my education. Huh. Um, so you get, you get one or the, and to call me a quote unquote, nice lady, um, instead of acknowledging (laughs) my education and, and, and expertise. Um, but you know, my goal is to kind of get my excommunication letter and frame it and keep going until that level. I think we should have a party if you get that. I would be there. I'll throw an excommunication party. Yeah. I'm here for it. <laughs> it's like I've been like de facto an ordination party. Yeah. <laughs> I've been de facto excommunicated twice already, so I might as well wait till I get the official letter. Yeah. Hopefully it's three strikes. Three de facto's <laughs> and you're out. Okay, so Maria is openly challenging the hierarchy and theology of the Catholic Church. She is. And I think pretty boldly at that, and certainly makes a convincing case for it. In a way then, Maria is doing what Kevin Garcia talked about in our fifth episode. She is openly challenging the leaders of her church, even though her challenges aren't likely to push an institution like the Catholic Church anytime soon. I mean, we can, I think, maybe imagine a time in the future where the Catholic Church budges on some of this, but it's not happening anytime soon. Right. 
there's there's this inherent tension there maria and other queer catholics are in a space that is explicitly unaffirming but their presence and their voices actively push against that theology right um But let's be clear, uh, there is a big difference on the one hand between the Catholic Church that takes an explicit stance against LGBTQ inclusion and the queer Christians who choose to almost, in a way, actively occupy that space in a form of active protest or subversion. And on the other hand, these big evangelical megachurches that don't have any policies regarding LGBTQ inclusion and the folks who go there and choose to look the other way. Right. Right, the Catholic Church is not ambiguous in their policies, but these evangelical churches choose to conceal their stance on inclusion. So I asked Maria about these evangelical spaces too and their choice to remain ambiguous. This one's tricky because it goes it very it goes two very different directions. Um so I think inherently churches that don't take an affirmative celebratory stance of LGBTQ folks do harm because when you don't take a side, you're taking the side of the oppressor implicitly. Like that's kind of basic. Um, Can you spell out why that's the case? Yeah, because um, oppression functions on power. So LGBTQ folks as an oppressed group, naturally um, have less power than straight and cis folks in society. And if you have power, you have the ability to capitalize on silence. Um, So in situations of silence or ambiguity, the people who win are always the people who have more power. Um, And institutions are people who, who take an ambiguous stance are refusing to put their power and their collateral behind the people who need it which means that in remaining ambiguous the people who are already in power remain in power Sustain, yeah yeah that's why okay maria however adds an important caveat to this discussion noting that sometimes ambiguity allows for the freedom to push boundaries and then you kind of have to take the always back because <laughs> <laughs> I I was talking to my husband before this show, um, and he was he converted to Catholicism, and then we left together. Um, and he talked about how the ambiguity of the Catholic Church um, on ish- uh, my husband is queer and trans, and he um, the Catholic Church when he came into the church didn't have a lot of overt public statements about trans identity and. Um, that ambiguity um, around trans issues made space for him to be in the church. It, it, he was able to say, okay, well, right. they don't have a stance. So, um, and he got a lot of, a lot of richness and a lot of fulfillment out of his Catholic experience. And it wasn't until um, Pope Francis made some pretty horrible anti-trans statements that we felt like we had to leave the church. So the, he wasn't ambiguous anymore. He just came down on a much more conservative side. So in some ways, um, 
ambiguity seems to leave the door open towards more progressive changes in conservative churches. And if you demand kind of clarity, it can make those churches fall down on a more conservative side that does a lot of harm. Right. I also have a lot of friends who are queer or LGBTQ in some capacity and who still identify as Catholic and who still practice a lot more than I do or who work in the church. Um, and who the, the ambiguity, the church's stances on LGBTQ issues aren't ambiguous, but the spaces in which you can function ambiguously within the church because you don't have to disclose are their livelihood. It's and, right. and also their mental health. It's their ability to pursue their vocation in some path, like some way that they couldn't in another. Um, and I, I saw that line and realized I just couldn't do it. But I know a lot of people who do, and it's really important to them. So, um, ambiguity. Sometimes churches try to like create a stance out of ambiguity to say, like, no, our stance is ambiguity. Um, and that can look like churches trying to take a middle of the road stance. The or, third way. Yeah. Or treat issues that really are about power as if it's a mutual disagreement between two equally positioned parties. Um, and this is what I've actually done some of my research on. I talked about um, Father James Martin, who, for the record, I have deep respect for and does some amazing um, work moving some more conservative folks in the church towards conversations about LGBTQ issues in the Roman Catholic Church. Um, but his work is about... He has a book called Building a Bridge, and his work is about... Um, conversation and dialogue and reconciliation between straight Catholics and LGBTQ Catholics, especially families. Okay. Um, and a lot of a lot of families have found it a really impactful, meaningful introductory text. But it comes off at the end of the day sounding like uh, we're just having a mutual disagreement, and we both owe each other equal work in coming together over this mm. disagreement. And I think that that churches can wind up taking a stance like that um, when they are ambiguous in terms of like, we need to work this out as a mutual disagreement or two people who are just right. need to agree to disagree. And issues like LGBTQ inclusion are life and death. Um, mm -hmm. So it's, it's not a mutual disagreement and churches can come down on, um, that stance because it's comfortable and it's easy and it allows them to remain ambiguous. And at the end of the day, it it's deeply disrespectful to the life and death stakes that LGBTQ right. folks face. Um, so I think that's another issue with ambiguity. Okay, there's so much to think about here, and I appreciate the tension that she's bringing up. Uh, but I can't help but think that even in this situation, ultimately, ambiguity is harmful. I mean, even though Maria's husband was able to find a space within the Catholic Church, I mean, yes, maybe it was the Church's ambiguity that created that space, but also it was the ambiguity that ultimately led to him being hurt. So it's like, I guess it's like a chicken or the egg here. Uh, but again, recalling something that we've said before, if the Church had taken a stance initially, then this wouldn't have happened. This religious trauma might have been avoided. Right, and to, to circle back to the point made earlier, there's a difference between occupying and subverting the hierarchies of a religious space as a marginalized person 
And going to a space looking for spiritual community and being burnt by that space because it was purposefully unclear about its policies. So, if you're comfortable putting your cards on the table, as far as churches and them creating explicit statements or doctrine on where they fall on any issue, but particularly on LGBTQ plus inclusion, affirmation in their spaces. Like, is that something you're wanting is for churches to make those statements? Yes. And it's, it feels like such a bottom line to me. Like, it's such a low benchmark to me. Like, I think so many churches are struggling to get, just get there. And that is like the bare minimum for me. I think I want, I want, if churches continue to exist, which I have so many issues with churches as they are because they're institutions that, I don't think Christianity was ever meant to be institutionalized. And I think that that's where power entered into Christianity and where it got away from some of the original Christian messages. Um, If it's going to remain structural, it's got to have those kinds of statements, but it's got to have them as a broader look at institutional power in churches all the way across the board. It has to be, it can't just be about LGBTQ inclusion. It has to be a deep, deep look at um, racism and anti-racism work in the church. It has to be a deep, deep look about money and class in the church. And it has to be a deep, deep look about hierarchy and institutional power in the church. So it is, yes, and it is the bare minimum that I want out of churches, Um, which is part of what makes this so frustrating is, like I said, I'm Sometimes I'm so polarized that I feel like we're arguing about things that it's like, that's not even what I want to argue about. I just want you to get to that bare minimum. Right. I expect that, you know. Or even like, I'm, there are a lot of churches that I've attended since I've gotten to Nashville um, where I just sit there for a couple of weeks and ask, like, are you even going to say anything about any sort of important issue? that is like being implicated by hierarchy and power. Like, are you going to talk about how racism exists? Are you going to name that from the pulpit? Um, Cause I'm at the point where a lot of churches that I attend, I'm just like, just say something about it. Not don't even like make a stance, just like say anything. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Um, and that's part of why you don't find me in, formal church services very much anymore as I'm, I'm, I'm so, I feel like churches are so far, so far behind the mark that I don't even know how the gap is going to close. Right. But again, I feel drawn back like time and time again. So it's complicated. Um, but yeah, I think that those statements are important and I don't want to downplay. I mean, uh, the amount of spiritual trauma that is done in spaces implicitly and explicitly that don't have those kinds of statements, either from messages that are directly given to people that something is wrong with them um, or sinful about them or inherently evil about them um, to, to just kind of a, a general condition in the water that you don't belong. Um, those statements can change lives. Um 
So they're extremely important. And for me personally, they feel like such a low mark. It mm-hmm. just feels complicated. Right. It's like you said, it's just, it's hard to even picture that that gap could close at this point. Yeah. But luckily for me, that's why I don't think of the church as just the institutional church, you know. Um, I find church, I always have, but I find church more and more in communities that don't call themselves church. Um, And so I have hope for the church as I understand it. I just don't have much hope for institutional churches most days. This might sound odd, especially given that the Catholic Church is the definition of an institution. But Maria says that it's her Catholic faith that makes her hopeful that the church can transcend the boundaries of institutions. What I love about the Catholic tradition is I experienced so much of church outside of church. Um, My notions of church shaped by Catholicism are intentional community and um, anywhere that I gather and and share a meal with other people and um, acts of service and where any two folks are gathered in the name of justice. Um, like those are my notions of church really shaped by Catholic, um, social teaching and by the Catholic worker movement, which was deeply outside of the walls of the church and very much in the homes and the lives of the oppressed and, um, an accompaniment. So for me, my notion of church was always shaped somehow outside of the church. Um, and that has helped in some ways yeah. with the jadedness. So tell us about like from from the coffee shop we're sitting in right now moving forward for Maria. How are you hoping to create pockets of of church in the world? Yeah. Um, well, right now I'm working on building my own wedding planning and officiating business for LGBTQ folks in particular based in the South. Um, and that is my first move and create like bringing sacramental experiences that are being denied to LGBTQ folks in the church to them outside Mm -hmm. of the institutional church. Um, and I'm slow rolling birthing that. And I, it's, uh, it's got a name. It's going to be called Pride of Place Weddings, which is drawn from the queer Bible commentary um, somewhere in Matthew. There is a verse that talks about, uh, the commentary talks about LGBTQ folks being given a pride of place in the coming Mm. kingdom um, for the oppression that we've experienced here on earth. Um, And I think my notion of the sacramental is kind of bringing the next world to this one, which, um, and my notion of the coming kingdom, which is this world, very much this world tangibly transformed, um, having a taste of that and sacramental experiences with LGBTQ folks. Um, so that's a big piece of it. Um, right now I work in the, the, um, addiction treatment field, um, kind of not in a patient care role, but in a supportive role and I do some side preaching, um, which is throwing me wildly out of my comfort zone and is super fun. But, um, 
the work that I'm having to do on myself through some of those programs um, and thinking through the promises of recovery from substance use and um, how much that that parallels with recovery from spiritual trauma um, that LGBTQ folks face and when those overlap um, and being able to talk about the promises of recovery um, and being happy, joyous, and free um, in spiritual spaces is a big deal. So I'm enjoying kind of dappling in that too. And yeah, um, yeah, seeing where that leads. So we've made it to the end of another episode and um, we are in the midst of this series on ambiguity. We'll have one more episode on ambiguity uh, coming up in two weeks, uh, which we're also super excited about. but uh, for now, uh, that's this has been another episode of Thanks Be to Pod. Uh, if you'd like to support the show, you can go to our website, thanksbetopod.com slash support. The links are there. Um, Colby, I guess this is it. Any words? Yeah. Any, anything the on, you- only the most liturgical of words. Oh. This has been the word of pod. For the people of pod. Thanks be, Thanks to, be pod. to pod. Oh, we did it. That's the first time we've ever done it correctly. That's pretty... (laughs) (laughs) All right. Cool. Okay, I'm going to hit stop before anything crackles. Love you.